Praise the Lord then. Hallelujah. Glory, 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 glory. Hallelujah. God is good. Yeah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I don't know, I don't know if you can feel what we feel in this sanctuary today. My God. But truly the spirit of the Lord is here with us today at PT and I'm just so delighted to have the opportunity to come and to speak um, after I, I guess much vacillation and, and conference and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and meetings and debriefings and um, the Lord spoke and I said, yeah, okay, let's, uh, let's come on come on into the house and, and, and speak to God's people. Um, it's not my words, it's what God has spoken to me and I plan to be an oracle of the Lord today. So I, I want you, uh, we had a powerful time in worship and I hope that um, you got all of your hollering and screaming out about 30 minutes ago because it's not gonna be pretty nice right now. No, 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 but seriously, it's, um, this is a time for us now, it's a moment um, of sobriety, so much that I have personally been shook by this word, and the Lord had me up um, one o'clock this morning. Now, granted, I preached the iteration of this sermon. Um, what is it, February twenty-sixth? And uh, and and what the Lord had given me in that moment shifted. We were talking about racial injustice, and we know we all understand intersectionality. Um, and the Lord kind of shifted me in the middle of that word to begin to speak about um, our family, our siblings who are experiencing housing insecurity mm -hmm, and, 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 and housing um, and homelessness. And so I really wanna make sure that I am in the flow of whatever it is God wants to speak this morning because I know I was invited here to speak about that and I am, but there's a deeper intersection that we really need to explore. And so um, I texted my brother O'Henne last night, it had to be close to one o'clock, and he said, do you wanna go over? And I said, well, no, I mean, the Lord, this is what the Lord said. And uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I've never been scared to speak the word, but I've, I'm, I had some trepidation about this, but nevertheless, we're gonna go in. So let's go into a smiling exercise, because God has made us glad. So show me your 32s, your 22s, your 10s, or whatever you have left. <laughs> Because he has made me glad. <laughs> oh, yes, he has made me glad. <laughs> um, so let's go, into, let's go into this word, and then we're going to go into uh, a word of prayer. Turn with me in your tablets, <laughs> your cell phones, and for my old school saints who still might be using the Bible. I was planning to bring mine today and uh, in haste left it, but thank God for technology, right? Amen. I don't believe this is the right version I want to use, but it'll be all right. You know, I'm old school. I, I was talking with, I believe it was O'Henne the other day, and I realized that I, I have been a preacher much longer than I've not been a preacher at this point. <laughs> I'm, I'll be 37 in July, and I've been preaching since I was 13, 14 years old. Um, so 
um, there's just a certain ease that the Lord has just given me in this task. Um, and, I, and I hope that you hear clearly what he wants to say. Turn with me to Luke 10, 25 through 37. When you've gotten there, the people in the sanctuary holler out, amen. Somebody say, wait a little while, you're moving too fast. (laughs) Amen, amen. I got a few amens out there. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem, to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in the oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, When he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, Go and do thou likewise. Hallelujah. Let us bow for a moment of prayer. Father, eternal creator, God, we just give you glory for this moment. And Lord, I thank you that you have anointed these lips of clay for this appointed time, for this appointed message. Would you break me down, rip me open, that that they would see none of me, God, but they would just see all of you that they won't hear Quentin, but they will hear you. And Father, will you charge us? Will you invigorate us? Will you anoint us afresh to do thou that which thou hast called us to do in this hour? In Jesus' mighty name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. So one of my favorite shows that I watch on television, I've probably seen every season um, and every episode a hundred times at this point. Um, it never gets old to me, it's the Golden Girls. And one of my favorite, 
characters on the Golden Girls is Sophia Petrillo. And I love the way that she sets up a story. She always says, picture it. So let me set this story up for you today. Picture it. The year is 1968. America is in the middle of the Vietnam War, a war that was rightfully, that rightfully garnered the disapproval of many Americans, a war in which over 58,000 Americans died, a war that at this point had lasted 14 years, a war that America had claimed to be fighting to preserve freedom on behalf of the South Vietnam government. On January 23rd, North Vietnam captured the USS Pueblo, a surveillance vessel, and subsequently, on January 30th, the Viet Cong launched the Tet Offense, capturing several cities in South Vietnam and completely catches America off guard. February 1st, 1968, Memphis sanitation workers echoed Cole and Robert Walker are crushed to death by a, manufacturing, a malfunctioning garbage truck, leading to a strike and ultimately a civil rights movement. February 8th, 1968, on the campus of South Carolina State University, police opened fire on students protesting segregation at Orangeburg's only bowling alley. As a result, three protesters were killed, 27 wounded, and all nine officers acquitted. While the protest organizer was sentenced to prison and served seven months, and that organizer would not be pardoned until 25 years later. February 29, 1968, the report of the Kerner Commission appointed by President Lyndon B. Johnson to examine the causes of race riots in American cities in previous years declares the nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. On April 4th, 1968, we lost one of the most influential black figures of the 20th century in the person of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Less than 24 hours before his death, he spoke these words to a group of striking sanitation workers in Memphis. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now because I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The next day, he was assassinated on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. Dr. King's assassination proved to be one of America's darkest days in history. A man whose life's work had been dedicated to the fight for equal rights for those who had been marginalized by the systems and institutions of oppression, specifically black Americans. Dr. King had been violently taken from us by the cowardice of racism. Yes, this racism had yet again reared its ugly head, attempting to snuff out the light of justice. And the spirit of grief became palpable across the landscape of this nation. Ubiquitous fear and rage engulfed the hearts of many black folks, coupled with the exhaustion of racial battle fatigue. And hoping against hope felt like an exercise in futility. 
juxtaposed to these and many other significant events that occurred in 1968, on February, February 19th of that year, less than two months before the assassination of Dr. King, on the American broadcast station, a Presbyterian minister and a child psychologist piloted a new educational children's show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Children across the Northeast were greeted daily by the calm and mild-mannered voice of Fred Rogers beckoning them with the question, won't you be my neighbor? The show will go on to run for 33 years, garnering numerous awards and accolades from the film and television academies. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Fred Rogers, born one year apart, living in the same country, living two totally different experiences, impacting generations of people across the world, and amidst a horrific war and the blatant racism experienced by black folks in America, both pled with us to be better neighbors. Webster defines a neighbor as one living or located near another, your fellow person. I would like to add one whom you are in community with. How many folks this morning know your neighbors? If your neighbor needed a cup of sugar, a jump for their car, a ride to the store, maybe just a call to vent, could they call on you? For a moment, let's suspend the reality of the current pandemic. If they were sick and lost their job, would they be able to sit at your dinner table? Could they count on you to defend them if they were in harm's way? Let's make it even more personal. Can folks come to your church and ask for help without having any significant ties to your congregation? I know that that is difficult to swallow and there is nuance and context to each individual situation. However, if we are going to preach that the cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord and that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, how is it that we can nickel and dime the budget in regards to the benevolence fund. Surely we believe the same God that will make ways for the congregants will do the same for his church. Can Cambridge look at Pentecostal Tabernacle and say it has been a good neighbor? More importantly, can the people on your proverbial pew say that you have been a good neighbor to them? How many times have you come to church, enjoyed the worship, enjoyed the word, but at the time of fellowship, gravitate to your own little circle. Clicks in the church. The separation of the wannabes, the pick-me's, and the never-wheels. How many people have we excluded from being connected to community? We should be cultivating koinonia, the Greek word for authentic fellowship, yet we perpetuate classism in the church. When we discuss racial justice and white supremacist culture, we look at Fred Rogers. He was a white, cisgender, able-bodied Christian male who held multiple identities that sit in the center of whiteness. And with this context, I wonder who he considered to truly be his neighbor. He didn't grow up in a red line neighborhood. He grew up in a mansion. He did not grow up in a town like Rosewood, nor did he endure the massacres of Tulsa, where violence were perpetuated against him for simply existing or thriving. He had the latitude to not only be seen and heard by the people in his community, 
but by the world at large by having his own television show. I find it interesting that this show debuted during the height of so much civil unrest in the world with the message requesting that we be his neighbor. Who was to say, maybe he had taken on the ideal of Frederick Douglass who said, it is easier to build strong children than repair broken men. What we know for sure is that the premise of the show was based on the personal experiences of Fred Rogers and his childhood. He grew up a lonely child, awkward and often teased for his weight. And I'm a living witness of that. <laughs> he was othered and treated differently from his peers. He found solace in escapism by hosting his own private puppet shows and playing with his ventriloquist dummy. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was born out of a profound sense of loneliness. Isn't that like God? To use our pain to show us the promise. It was created so that children all across the world would learn how to coexist, to treat one another fairly with kindness, love, empathy, and respect. Yet, here we are in the year of our Lord, 2021, and we are still screaming at the top of our lungs with every fiber of our being, Black Lives Matter. Here we stand in 2021, where a white, cisgender, able-bodied male can commit racially motivated hate crimes against the Asian community and have it dismissed by authorities as a very bad day. Racism is insidious, working seamlessly in systems and institutions. The fact of the matter is, we have folks in PT and in this community of Cambridge who hold multiple identities of oppression. And when we have these kinds of conversations, we must always give great consideration to intersectionality. Racism, classism, gender inequity, homophobia, ableism, ageism, and xenophobia. Today, I would like to amplify the voices and highlight the experiences of another group of our neighbors. Those who are experiencing housing instability and those who are experiencing housing insecurity. During the pandemic, 28% of all renters have lingering debt. 58% of those renters are black. Black folks make up almost 20% of all adult renters, but 32.7% of all eviction defendants are black. When looking at the data around the health outcomes of families whose housing is unstable versus those who are experiencing literal homeless, the research shows that rent strain, which is being behind on your rent, is the most prevalent form of housing instability and creates the same exact health outcomes for caregivers and young children as if they had multiple moves or experienced homelessness. Boston Children's Hospital. Okay. The Boston Globe has already illuminated for us four years ago that the median net worth of white people in Boston is $247,500, while the median net worth for Caribbean black folks was $12,000, and the median net worth of black folks that are descendants of slaves brought to America was $8. We have a problem. Through gentrification, deinstitutionalization, 
of persons living with mental illness, the high unemployment rate, the emergence of health crises like HIV and AIDS, and lack of affordable housing has served as major contributors of housing instability and housing insecurity and has launched us into this modern age of homelessness. So the question becomes, how do we become good neighbors? And in what ways has PT as a church or we as individuals participated in upholding oppression? How have our actions been informed by white supremacist culture? Well, what does the text say? Here, we see in the scripture a lawyer questioning Jesus about the inheritance of eternal life. Don't you just hate when someone asks you a question that you are, they already know the answer to? Right? They're trying you. And Jesus, knowing that this man was a biblical scholar of Mosaic law, rebuts with a question. He says, what is written? How readest thou? And he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus says, okay, there you go. There's your answer. You got it. Do this, and thou shalt live. But the lawyer wasn't satisfied with Jesus' response. And in an attempt to force Jesus to answer a question that could possibly entrap him, he quips, who is my neighbor? And I can just picture in my mind's eye Jesus being very irritated. You really trying me now, man. So since you want this smoke, let me hit you off with a little story time. And then Jesus began speaking to him parabolically. And being the smooth savior of the world that he is, he tells a story that interweaves the socio-political state of that time with the heart of the father that spans across millennia into this present day. He shares about the Samaritan. And take note that I didn't say the good Samaritan, but simply the Samaritan. So there are five characters in this story that Jesus began to tell. The guy who got jacked up, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, and the innkeeper. Okay? You got it? I'm going to say it for you one more time. There are five characters in this parable. The guy who got jacked up, we have all been him, and I'm going to tell you why. The priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, and the innkeeper. Okay, this last time, say it with me. So, I'm, so I know that you actually have it, okay? The guy who got jacked up. <laughs> the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, and the innkeeper. Keeper. The scripture says that the guy that got jacked up, he fell among. And when I read that, um, as I shared last month, when I read the scripture, it, I, I sometimes get so frustrated with myself because I can barely get through passages without making annotations and looking things up and 
on wanting to understand the context in that time, and I look up, and two hours have passed, and I've read 12, 12 verses. And I'm like, what happened to, what happened to my Bible study? I'm, I'm trying to be deep, you know what I'm saying? Trying to be like those people. I read five chapters a day. I read two books of the Bible and spent five hours in prayer. I ain't got that kind of time, but I want to do it, <laughs> you know? But, I, but the Lord, the Holy Spirit, arrests me in the middle of just my simple devotion to show me things about um, how he wants me to navigate this life on earth. And when I saw the phrase that he fell among, you know, I'm from North Carolina, and we got a lot of country sayings, and fell among sounds very country to me. I said, wait a minute, what's going on? And what it suggests here is that, you know, this, th the guy who got jacked up, this wasn't just some random occasion, right? He just didn't get randomly jacked up. He had been hanging out with these people. He had been in community and fellowship with these people. And, you know, it made me think about when we cast folks aside, everyone desires to be in family. Even the Word of God says that he sets the solitary in families, right? So if, if God's plan for us is for us to be in community and not be alone, the enemy will also take that same precept and pervert it and cause you to fall among communities that will potentially harm you, okay? I, I, I want to really drive that home. But we've got to pull back on what we think about these people. We've got to examine the rubric that we use on who we engage with. Because growing up in church, and especially growing up like us, you know, this is Pentecostal church, you grow up Pentecostal holiness, you know, we, we know how to keep folks out more than anybody else, okay? If you don't meet this benchmark and this benchmark and this benchmark, you cannot hang out with us. You know, and we make jokes, as young people, we used to make jokes because the mothers of the church, you know, there'd be people and they'd be tarrying on the altar for the Holy Ghost. And they'd tell they'd say, call on Jesus, baby, call him. And you down there, you call him. I mean, you, I understand why you get filled with the Holy Ghost because you didn't call Jesus for an hour. You're in a trance by now. You, you have no choice but to speak in tongues, but they would call on Jesus. And then if someone appeared as if they weren't quite getting it, if they weren't really assimilating to the culture, they'd say, get on up, baby, you ain't got them. Come back next week. Y'all know it's true. Don't play me. We have a way of keeping folks out of community who have fallen among. And it's so interesting because if we were to read the books of our lives, there are chapters that we would desire to be read in silence because there are times when we ourselves have fallen among. So Jesus is telling us to care for those who have fallen among thieves. We got to call a spade a spade. We too have been in their shoes, but I'm going to ask this question later, but I'm going to ask it now, what changed? Right? We know that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So at any given moment, anything that someone has gone through, any type of attack that someone has gone through, the circumstances and the vicissitudes of life that occur to us all, 
When did we forget that the Bible commanded us to bear one another's burdens? So he was stripped of his raiment, wounded, and left half dead. And isn't this a picture of how the enemy attacks us? What do we associate with nakedness? Shame. The Bible says that, talking about Adam and Eve, that they were naked and not ashamed. But once they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam said, um, Eve, we're going to need to cover up. And Eve said, well, it's the fig leaves for me. Okay? So, if we came into this world and were created by a divine creator without shame, isn't it, um, I mean, it, it is so likely that the enemy will use the exact opposite. You know, I, I preached a sermon a few years ago called The Answer is in the Antonym. And so many times we hear messages from the enemy all throughout the day, um, throwing those fiery darts, throwing thoughts, right? And whatever the enemy is, is trying to plant into our minds or thoughts and seeds about our lives, the answer is actually in the antonym. So what, the, so what we are hearing that is so hor horrible about ourselves, which is so terrible, God is really trying to communicate the exact opposite to us. Okay? So when we talk about the shame, you know what, I'm going to, you know, y'all like when preachers put themselves out there. I'm going to put myself out there. Because we're talking about homelessness. We're talking about housing insecurity and housing instability. And I was preparing for this. And um, I tell you, I almost didn't accept the opportunity to come here and speak because I was dealing with some shame of my own. Right? I was like, oh, God, they asked me to come preach at the church. I ain't been no way since the whole pandemic. I've been shut up in the house. Shut up in the house and gained 65 pounds. Clothes so tight, look like spandex. And they want me to get up in front of God's people on YouTube and Tower and preach. And I battled not with sharing the gospel, but my presentation, right? But I thank God for putting people in my life, like my brother Ohine, who when I, I told him, I said, you know what? I'm, I'm, something's not right. I'm not feeling right. I, I can't articulate it. In that moment, the Holy Spirit gave me the articulation and said, you're dealing with shame. And I said, brother, I'm dealing with shame right now, and I don't know how to handle it. And because he knew the word that I was preparing for this Sunday, he said, well, isn't that like God? How about the shame experienced by the community that you're advocating for on this Sunday? And it shifted my paradigm that here I am, somebody may walk with a limp right now, but mostly able-bodied right? In, in better health than I was. Can go to the store and buy clothes. Can shower. Have a refrigerator full of food. Someone who has the capacity with the resources they have right now to change their experience. But experiencing shame because I can't present the way I want to when there are people who cannot bathe re regularly, who do not have consistent food, who eat out of garbage cans who wish they could, who wish they could have some of the worst clothes that we think we have in our, in our closets. You, you see, you see, you see that? And, and I, I, I struggled, I said, you know what? It's all right. I'm going to get up here and do what the Lord said do. 
but that is just a testament of how the enemy tries to use shame in order to keep us from doing what God has called us to do. And how many people, how many people who are experiencing housing instability and homelessness battle with shame every day? Battle with shame every day are, are, are attacking their minds, their physical health deteriorating. And I'm going to tell you a story about somebody I met um, when I first moved here. Um, his name was Ed. And I'm going to talk about this when we talk about binding up the wounds with oil and wine. So we have three selves. We have the authentic self, we have the ideal self, and we have the real self. The authentic self is everybody, everything that God has called you to be from the foundation of the world. The authentic self is all of your giftings and all of your anointings and all of your callings. Your authentic self is how you are supposed to show up in the world at all times because of what God has done for you. And then we have the ideal self. And there's nothing wrong with the ideal self. The ideal self is the things that we aspire to, right? The things that we want to be, you know? Like earlier, I, I, I talked about aspiration. I wish I could pray for five hours a day. Well, I don't have the latitude to do that right now because I work. But I wish I could pray all these hours or I could reach, I, I could spend time in scripture and I, I want to attain this degree and this certificate and get this job. The ideal self hinges on aspiration. And there's nothing wrong with aspiration because I believe that God has planted some of those things in our hearts, right? But when we get consumed with the ideal self, we begin to relinquish grounding in the authentic self and we begin to experience shame about our real self, okay? And let's talk about the real self. The real self is us when nobody else is looking. The real self are the things that we battle. The, the real self is the coulda, shoulda, wouldas, right? And the enemy wants to riddle the, the, the real self in shame. He wants to use shame to, to turn people's hearts and minds away from God because they say, truly, God can't use me or I can only go this far, or I'll never get out of this situation, right? And they begin to relinquish grounding in the authentic self, who God called them to be. And the reason why I brought this up is because a lot of times, not a lot of times, that, that ideal self can be rooted in capitalism. We are so rooted in how much money I can get. And what, I, and what I look like, and we have, we have perverted the definition of biblical prosperity, okay? But let's, so we talked about the Samaritans. They wounded him. They left him for half dead. And so he's laying here, and we see the priests. The priests were the spiritual leaders for the people of Israel, tasked with officiating offerings for the people of Israel. They were students and enforcers of God's law. How many leaders 
are captured by capitalism? How many leaders are perpetuating racism, xenophobia, homophobia, classism, and exceptionalism? How many of our leaders who claim to hear the voice of and who claim to be oracles of the eternal are perpetuating ideas that are harmful and dismissing the pain of the marginalized? How many leaders have fallen into capitalistic opportunism and lined their own pockets via the prosperity gospel? And believe me, I do believe God wants us to prosper, but I define prosperity as having what you need when you need it. With so many of our siblings suffering with housing insecurity, how many of our leaders have turned a blind eye or said that the issue is too deep, too broad, and too nuanced to make any significant impact? How many of our leaders have written off the wounded, negated the naked, and dismissed the half-dead? How many of our leaders have blamed the disenfranchised for their station and held them in disregard? How many of our leaders have flippantly minimized um, the entire life and existence of another human being as a means of absolution from having to allocate resources? How many of our leaders, and I believe PT desires to be a house of leaders that will stand with those who are experiencing housing instability and insecurity. However, there's a paradigm that must shift if our leaders are to be the neighbors that Jesus is calling them to be. There is an unlearning and relearning that must occur. And I heard the Spirit of God this morning at 1 o'clock in the morning, and I just couldn't rest, say, no more new wine in old wineskins. No more new wine in old wineskins. There are people who don't look like you, don't think like you, don't have the pedigree you think they should have, that don't identify with the gender that they were assigned at birth, and don't love who you think they should love, and God is going to use them to show you that you don't know everything about how God moves and who God can use. When you look at the statistics in regard to LGBTQIA folks who are experiencing homelessness because of their families, flesh and blood have thrown them out. It is maddening. Children, not adults, children thrown out in the streets because of their gender expression or sexuality, but we claim to be such good neighbors. LGBT youth are 120% more likely to experience homelessness than non-LGBT children. People who are discarded simply because of how they show up in the world. Homeless for no other reason than for being queer. And I bring this up because the church has reduced the LGBT community's entire personhood and existence to deviance and defilement. Are you so tied to a doctrine that you lack the capacity to see a human? Jesus, help your church. The priests were the spiritual leaders for the people of Israel, tasked with officiating offerings for the people of Israel. They were students and enforcers of God's law. Will you be like the priest in the parable and pass by to the other side? In this text, it means to move away and do what is in direct opposition. He saw the need, but he did the complete opposite. And then we have our third character, the Levite. When I first read the text, I asked, why the distinction, Jesus? 
And some of you may be wondering also. Now, initially, I wanted to make a distinction between the priest saw the man, because I'm reading from the King James Version. It says the priest saw the man, but the Levi looked at him. And I was going to preach that thing out, and the Holy Spirit said, chill, look, up, look it up in the Greek. And when you look it up, the same, it's the same word all three times. They all saw him. But that's also powerful. They all saw him. They all observed. This was a calculated decision, right? But I, I, I wanted to, you know, I, I, you know, after I did my little investigation, you know, got my little concordance out and said, okay, that's not what the Lord is saying about this. Why did he make that distinction? It's because a lot of times we put all the onus on the leaders of the church, the pastors, right, or the elders. But come here, praise team. You so worried about being seen that folks can't see Jesus? Come here, armor bearers. Come here, trustees. Don't be so busy with the church business that you forget the business of the church. Come here, greeters. Come here, intercessory prayer team. You smiling, winking, and blinking, and grinning in here and can't turn the kind word to folks on the street. The same accountability of the leader falls on the Levites. And I would like to say that we are all Levites under the new, under the new covenant. So what are you doing? If we are all Levites under the new covenant, if we are all naming the name of Christ as Lord, we are all accountable. Who are you driving by every day? The people holding signs. You know, I, I joke, I say, you know they're lying. They know they're lying. But you can still give them a dollar. What matters in that moment is not what they are going to do with it. What matters is the posture of your heart. My godfather, Palmer Dolly, taught me this through word and action. I have witnessed him literally search for cash in his truck and in his pockets so that he could give to those who were panhandling. Another lesson he said, he said, Quentin, if you have anything, you have enough to share. My mom, same way. We were on our way to Trader Joe's in Raleigh a couple of months ago, back in the late summer, early fall, and we were at a light, and she gave a gentleman a couple of dollars, and I remember the lesson that she taught me as a child. She would always say, you can't go wrong with giving. Right? What are we going to be? When I first moved to Boston, I've been here now 10 years. I moved here in 2011. I remember um, just having my eyes open in a way that I had never before. I had done extensive traveling before, but I had never lived away in a city like this and had to observe the community, the ecosystem that was built here. And there were just so many people experiencing homelessness. And I moved here for graduate school, and I remember I was leaving the library. I was in Harvard Square, and I was walking to um, the train station to get on the 77 bus. And I just remember it being so cold. And I was ill-prepared for the winter here in Boston because I was moving from North Carolina. And at that time, global warming had not had done the effects that it had as it has now, where we had the same temperature as North Carolina. So I remember getting on a plane and it being 70 degrees in January 
and getting here and y'all had five feet of snow and I had on canvas shoes. That was not the move, okay? <laughs> and I remember it just being so cold and my fingers being so cold, but knowing that I had a room and a home that I was going to and there were so many people that were just laying out on the street, bundled up, and I don't even know what that material is called that they get. I'm pretty sure that they, that they are, that it's given to them from the, from the um, shelters. And they're just bundled up with layers and layers and layers in the bitter cold. And I just remember getting on the bus, heading to Arlington, and before I realized it, tears were just silently streaming down my face because I was thinking, what can I do? I'm just a poor graduate student. What can I do to help all these people? What? And, and, and I didn't enter into that space with judgment. And that's something that we have to make sure that when we're engaging with people who hold a marginalized identity, which, which, we, which, which we don't identify, that we enter in with curiosity instead of entering in with judgment. Okay? And so I was just curious, like, what are the parameters? What are the predic- what, what predicaments? What caused this person to be in this situation? But now, 10 years later, we're in PT South. And if I walk to the T station, I'm pretty sure I'll see people who are experiencing homelessness right now. I still see them. But what has changed? And we need to ask ourselves the question. Have we hardened our hearts? Have we become so used to seeing people living on the streets, eating whatever they can find, and just accepting it as our reality. I just have a feeling that God is saying that we know in this space that it is not our best, and we could do more. We have to learn how to rehumanize folks through empathy. See, we've we've lived in this constant state of dehumanization because we're in the 21st century. We have this thing called cancel culture. If you don't do anything I like, you're automatically canceled. And while I do believe, right, that there are certain actions that people um, can, can, can engage in, that there is still room for some type of redemption. I cannot be a believer and not believe that God does not create a life option said, I put before you life and death, right? And so there's always a life option present. So I can't cancel somebody. And I remember, you know, people in this age, they call people, oh, oh, that person's trash. And I remember having such a difficult time with that. And, 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 and I was harmed in a particular way by a person. And I quit, oh, that person's trash. And then the Holy Spirit gently reminded me, Trash can be recycled. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so even, even though I wanted to settle on, this person is horrible. They shouldn't have done this to me. This was a mess. Oh, you're just so trash. And that's what Jesus does with us every day. When we make decisions that don't look like the ones that he wants us to make, Our righteousness is as filthy rags. But every day, mercy's new. Every day, he redeems us. Every day, fresh anointing. Every day, God chooses to recycle us. So how could we not walk in empathy 
How could we not look at someone's situation and just automatically just throw them to the wayside without asking the question, how did you get here? And then we have the Samaritan. We have the Samaritan, and notice I didn't say good, because I I refuse to use terms that are given to exceptionalism. We don't have any model minorities. We are all worthy. We are all exceptional. I don't like words like classy. I don't like words like refined because they are earmarks. They are ways for us to determine how we are going to engage with somebody based upon their station in life. Now, you look at the Samaritan, and he, like the other, said he saw him. It said that the priest saw him, that the Levite looked at him, and that the Samaritan saw him. And Bishop Corinthian, in the Greek, that word means it is Edo. It means they observed him. So if you've observed someone and you see they've been wounded, you see they've been harmed, you have made a calculated decision not to help them. But the Samaritan, he didn't just see him. The Bible says he was moved to compassion. And the translation of that word compassion is is from the gut. He was moved from the gut. And we know that the gut is also called the seat of discernment. He was able to look at this man and assess the situation and make a determination about what he would do. How many times have we had the opportunity to look at someone, but we made the decision to walk along, walk on by? And when you look at the Samaritan, I can understand why you know, um, the, the, the theologians who were the commentaries to say that because we're working under white supremacist rule, right? And so, of course, there's this degree of exceptionalism that is written into the word that was never about the word in the first place. And when we look at Samaritans, we look at the rift between them. Looks much like it does right now in the world between white folks and black folks. It was long. It was storied. It was a deep chasm a schism amongst kinfolks. And the Jews saw the Samaritans as less. Mm -hmm. They treated them like second-class citizens. But the Samaritans saw him, and he was moved to compassion. He had compassion on him. He was moved to the seat of his discernment. And what did he do? He bound up his wounds. And when I think about wounds, wounds stink. And when I think about wounds, I think about a gentleman named Ed. And I don't think Ed is with us anymore. Ed was someone I met in Harvard Square when I was working at Starbucks in graduate school. And Ed was a person experiencing homelessness. And he would come into the store. And because of his health and his life experiences, he had begun to decay. This man was walking around like a living corpse. And the smell would be so pungent that, that the customers would complain, the other 
Um, my, my, my other coworkers will complain, and they'd be like, oh my God, why does Ed have to come in here and sit? Because, you know, it's cold outside, so people who are experiencing homelessness are looking for some warm shelter. And, and at that time, Starbucks had a policy where, well, the store that I was working in, because it may not be the corporate policy, that if you buy a cup of coffee, you can sit there as long as you want to. And so he would buy, you know, the smallest cup of coffee that he could buy, and he would sit there all day. And the smell would be so horrible. And I remember one day I was just so exhausted with, with having to smell this man rotten. And the Holy Ghost arrested me in that moment and said, how dare you? You claim you want to be a missionary. You don't want to be a missionary. You want to go on vacation. You say you want to be a missionary. Here is a man in your presence whose legs have sores so big that you can put your hands in them. And you are repulsed because of the smell because you are being inconvenienced. I said, oh, my God. I said, well, I guess I'm not called to be a missionary. I can't do this. I ain't able. <laughs> and you might, listen, you know I'm going to keep it real. I said, I, I ain't able. Because that is, a, that is a very specific ministry. And if we are really called to be good neighbors, we got to deal with that. That's a very real experience, the smell of the wounds. This man in our text had wounds. But what did the Samaritan do? He bound them with wine and oil. Wine in the Bible was used as an antiseptic. And oil was used to reduce inflammation. And he bound up his wounds. And that's what God is calling us to do. And I can't tell you what that's going to look like. I'm not going to fake the funk. I don't know what that's going to look like for you in the ecosystems that you navigate. But God is calling us to bind up the wounds of our siblings who are experiencing homelessness and instability and insecurity. He bound up the wounds and he knew he made an assessment because a simple dressing would not do. He just didn't bind the wounds and left them there. He put him on his own beast. He put him on his beast and he took him to the end. He put him on his beast, his own beast, and took him to the end. So first, he had mercy, right? And then he provided ministry. And now he has moved into the place where I believe God is calling the church, and that is maintenance. So it's so easy for people to get up here like me to get up here and preach and say, we need to do the right thing. And God is calling us to do A, B, C, and D without laying out a plan. Right? And we get convicted and we say, oh, my God, that was a good word. And then we live our lives the same way we did the day before and the day before that. What is it going to take for the church to move into maintenance? Right? He used his own resources. You know, I'm reminded, you know, and I believe PT is a blessed church. I don't know the finances, but when I tell you, I came to the first business meeting. I was like, my God, this church is doing really good. 
But there are people who give, they do give, and have it to give, and it is nothing to them. And I believe God is calling us, and, and this ain't for everybody because we understand context and nuance, that there are people in our community right now who have not spoken a word to us who are experiencing housing instability, who need rent relief right now. So this isn't for everybody, and I need to make that clear. But the folks who have the resources and the capacity, we have to learn how to give until it hurts. We have to learn, and, 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 and my brother O'Hena just said, come on, I got to call him out real quick. That brother, man, you're talking about a good dude. That's a good guy. And what he has taught me on, on my faith walk is that if you can see the end result, then it's not really faith. And he, I'm a very methodical and measured person. I asked Uncle Kevin, I always have a plan. I have a plan. I have step A, step B, step C, subset one. I'm ready. I know what the end result's going to be. In five weeks, this is what's going to happen, and boom, voila, it's here. But here, in, in, in when it comes to ministry, when it comes to what God would have me to do, I don't like stepping out on faith. I don't, I, I'm, I'm, can I be real? Stepping in the deep is hard for me. Stepping out in, in ways that could wash me away and take me away, I don't like that. I'm like the disciples that stayed in the boat. You all right out there? Said, God be the glory. <laughs> okay? But what is it going to take for us to get out of the boat? What is it going to take? I think about, and please correct me on this story, theologians in the house, but I think about the the woman who gave, was it two mites? And you had everybody else just giving, oh, I'm, going, I'm dropping $1,000. I'm dropping $10,000. I'm dropping a million dollars. And she gave two mites. And she gave all that she had. And her sacrifice was honored. So we've got to move. We, we ha- I believe that we want to show mercy. And I believe that we will provide ministry. But now we have to provide some type of maintenance. He took him to the inn, and he, and he told the innkeeper, it's our fifth character, we had the end of the story. He told the innkeeper, he said, I got to go, but here are two pence. Use this up, and whatever he needs above this, I will pay you back. It's the maintenance. It's the maintenance. It's no, more, it's no more flashy sermons. It's no more jumping and getting up. It's I've got to get out here and I've got to do a practical work. There are resources available that we could be pooling for people right here in our church. And I'll tell my own story. I didn't realize I, I had a conversation yesterday with a, with a professional who is a CEO or a nonprofit that works with homeless um, communities and people who are experiencing instability and insecurity. And I didn't realize for the last decade I had been in a state of housing instability for 10 years. I've lived in Boston for 10 years. I've moved every year that I was here because I was so broke. I came here to do a master's degree, but I got one in music. I'm an opera singer. I'm pretty good, too. (laughs) 
You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Plug, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know? But listen, I didn't have a degree in finance. I didn't have, you know, I, 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 I had a degree where you either make it, you either sink, or you swim. And baby, you know what I'm I was sinking for a little while. I was sinking. But because of that sinking and because of not having consistent income and because of experiencing job loss that not only affected me um, financially but emotionally and mentally and spiritually and dealing with the trauma of, of job loss. When I, when I said that to the man yesterday and I said, oh, I've experienced housing instability. And, and, and he said, well, you know, actually, like, you know, like, I've moved around a lot too. And I was like, no, brother, you don't, you don't understand. Five years ago, I don't, I don't even think I made $15,000 in one year. I made about five or six times that now, thank you, Lord. But there was a time when I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. There was a time when I didn't know how I was going to pay my rent. There was a time, I have had to move home twice in the last decade for extended periods of time, at least three months each time with my parents as an adult. There are people in your church. Now, 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 I was okay that he, you know, he knew who I was. Um, actually, he had helped me move out of my last apartment before I went home. And he saw the apartments. You see, he was looking at the glory, but he didn't know the story. You know, he saw the apartment that I was living in. And he said, there's no way this boy was living this good. And he's going to tell me he had housing instability. But it just shows you the grace of God. I don't look like what I've been through. There are people in our sanctuary who don't look like what they are currently going through. But we've got to do the investigation. And not to be nosy. We've got to really open our arms out with love. There are people who are behind on their rent. There are people who are moving month to month. There are people who are moving every time their lease is up. And there are people who don't have any way to live. And we come to church, and we've been looking so forward to get back to church in the pandemic. But we got to do more. And, and listen, I was a praiser before I was a preacher. But we got to do more than just run around, y'all. It's going to take more than a dance to bring us up out of this foolishness. It's going to take more. We've got to give harder. We've got to love harder. And we've got to put away some of the harmful ideologies that were pretty much man-made or misinterpreted so that we can get to the heart of God. So I've already gone over my time. Y'all let me preach way too long. That was not my intention. I want to leave you with this question. Here we are in 2021. That show was created in 1968. Will you be a good neighbor today? Will you determine in your heart, in your mind? I don't even care if you say, I don't know. I don't know how to be a good neighbor. Or I don't know what is going to be required of me to be a better neighbor. Some of y'all have been doing a stellar job, but we can always do more. We have a community of people who are waiting for us to be who God called us to be. And they are asking the question, won't you be my neighbor? God bless you people.